1: on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast where we're talking about this remarkable figure who emerges in the aftermath of the Romans leaving Britain in the 5th century AD or CE, a figure called Ambrosius Aurelianus, one of the key influences in the creation of the legendary figure that is King Arthur. I don't know if any of you have seen the 2000s movie, the King Arthur movie, with Clive Owen, with Keira Knightley, with Mads Mickelson. Well, the basis for that King Arthur figure evidently does seem to be Ambrosius Aurelianus, this figure who emerges in the 5th century, who battles against the Saxons in the wake of the Romans leaving this distant Island. Now to talk through what we know about Ambrosius Aurelianus and the legacy of this figure, how he evolves, how he partly contributes to the creation of this figure of King Arthur, join me to explain all. I was delighted to go and interview in person earlier this week Bournemouth University's Dr Miles Russell. Miles, he's a hell of a character, he's a great laugh, it was wonderful to get him back on the podcast. He was on the pod last year to talk all about King Arthur and how he was this Celtic superhero moulded from five particular ancient figures, one of which is Ambrosius Aurelianus. Miles is back on the podcast, this time to explain all about this mysterious Ambrosius Aurelianus, what we know and how his legacy evolves over the following centuries. So without further ado to talk all about ambrosius aurelianus and whether he was the real king arthur here's miles miles it's great to have you back on the podcast Justin, it's good to be here <laughs> and doing it in person which is yep. always a plus In your office at Bournemouth University, in the chaos of of your office, I see. This is a classic archaeologist's office though isn't it? I see just boxes everywhere, I see finds. This is the archaeologist's life isn't it?
2: It is, it is. I wish it wasn't quite as chaotic as this but yes yeah you're in the middle of of everything but a lot of things we actually found this this summer so uh, which we're processing and working on at the moment.
1: There we go, who knows there'll be the next huge discovery announced from this room one day, from this very room indeed. We're talking about something a bit different today though aren't we? We're going back to post-Roman Britain and this figure Ambrosius Aurelianus now The legacy of this figure from himself to clive owen in the early 2000s i can't think of many other figures from this immediate post-roman period in britain that seem to be so well known or at least have quite a bit of a should we say fame around them than this guy
2: there aren't many people obviously you know we still refer to that time as the dark ages there is quite a lack of reliable written sources anyway. So Ambrosius Aurelianus is one of those figures who really stands out. Of course, we've got Arthur uh, and most of the oxygen from discussion at the time is arguing whether he existed or not. But Ambrosius Aurelianus we know is there. He is fighting, he's one of a a series of warlords there in the carnage of post-Roman Britain trying to establish order and perhaps trying to survive really but he's one of the few that we know anything about.
1: And that's what's really interesting, isn't it? You mentioned Arthur, King Arthur, and it seems that Ambrosius Aurelianus plays a part in Arthur's story. But what you say there, I think, is so, so interesting is the fact that this guy, he is a real historical figure in this time where, as you say, it's it's still shrouded even to this day in quite a lot of mystery.
2: It is, it is. And I, admittedly, you know, compared to Arthur, Ambrosius is far less well-known. He's, he's obviously not a, a huge household name, but you could say he's probably got more impact because we can trace what happens to Ambrosius afterwards, you know, he's got impact as far as the earliest English dynasties have got. He's got an impact culturally in Wales uh, with the origins of the Welsh flag. Um, He's even really looks as if he has got a significant impact on the creation of the Arthur story itself. So arguably he's got more significant impact Dan Arthur, or indeed quite a lot of period uh, people from the Roman period right up into into the Saxon and early medieval times.
1: Well, let's delve into this figure then, this really interesting figure. But let's go to the background first of all. Fifth century A.D. or C.E. Britain, the Romans have gone. So what's the what's the context when Ambrosius Aurelianus is living?
2: The In period immediately after the the, the collapse of the Roman administration is, I guess you could sort of point to more modern examples like the sort of uh, democratic deficit collapse of society in, in Syria or Afghanistan where you've got a series of warlords, you've got a fairly sort of bloody civil war and from an outsider's perspective it's very difficult to identify sides or to really see what's going on. We know that Rome pulls out of Britain in AD 410 Prior to that, there's been a series of rebellions, in Britain is one of the most difficult and problematic of all Rome's provinces. There's a huge amount of military tied up in the province, it's so far away from the, the heart of the empire, it's separated by the English Channel as well, so it, it's a very difficult province to control. And we know in the last sort of 50 years of Roman administration in Britain, They're not controlling it very well. There's a series of rebellions, Uh, some of these so-called emperors take soldiers out of Britain to attack the emperor in Rome and by 410 the emperor Honorius in Rome has had enough and and basically says to the Britons, sort yourselves out. We've got problems so far too pressing elsewhere and effectively acknowledges the fact that the Britons have rebelled against Rome and they're not going to do anything about it, they're left to their own devices. Now from that point of view it's frustrating from a historical perspective because Roman writers, people in the Mediterranean, are no longer interested, we're not getting any information from Britain. So we hear lots about, say, the Visigoths in Italy, the Vandals in North Africa, the Eastern and Western Empire fighting it's each other, but we don't hear much about what's going on in Britain. So as far as contemporary sources go, we're reliant on a very small number of written texts, most of which aren't written anything close to the time that they're describing, all from a religious perspective. So, we've got a, an, an individual called Gildas who's writing in about AD 540. It's about as close to the period as we've got. And he writes a, a religious polemic. It, it's a rant, it's a sermon about the corruption of his time. And he really gives us, you know, if, if we're trying to think of somebody who's really coloured our perspective on post Roman Britain. It's Gildas because it's all about uh, Saxon, vicious Saxons, angry Britons, plague, pestilence, disease. You know, people with their togas on fire, towns burning. It's real sort of blood and thunder stuff. But he presents it from the point of view that the Britons have strayed from the path of true Christianity. They've become corrupt. They've had you know orgies and parties and decadence. And he portrays the English, the Anglo-Saxons, the migrants coming into Britain as the scourge of God. They're a biblical plague sent to punish the Britons. That's his perspective. So it's difficult from his writings to really get a sense of what's going on. But he presents a, a world of chaos and confusion where there are multiple warlords, each as bad as the other, fighting one another, fighting the Saxons who were coming in. And that's really, from the historical text, that's the view that we get you get the feeling that it's not a great time to be alive. And it, it may have been it may have, for most majority of people, it may have been, things may have been fine. If you're on the front line of any kind of conflict obviously it's less great. But there's no central authority in Britain when the Romans have gone. There's no capital, there's no army maintaining order. So it is pretty much everyone to, for themselves. So we're seeing a, a, I guess a political picture that's fragmenting. People are in conflict. And so there it probably is a lot of truth in what in what Gildas says about the political chaos of the times.
1: What strikes me is that this, the time when Gildas is writing, this is still 140 years after the Romans left. That's still a, a sizable amount of time that we have no sources from almost, literary sources.
2: No, exactly. And sort of the peripheral references from the Roman world talk about Britons, uh, you know, the Britons are, are, are lost to Rome. They're under the control of the Saxons. And that's pretty much it. There are no useful sources for which um, we can reconstruct the past so we rely heavily on archaeology but in the last of situations changing more recently but throughout the 20th century we were very much colored by Gildas's writings and there was this view that the post-roman period was chaotic and unpleasant and difficult and so archaeology was presented as evidence for that you know archaeologists were looking for signs of violence on skeletal remains signs of settlements burning down signs of economic collapse, things that that supported the narrative of this sort of religious fanatic Gildas. Excavations more recently have have focused on the idea of there are quite a lot of settlements at the time, they seem quite prosperous, people are trading, so there is this other mass of evidence that's giving us a better picture of the times but if we're trying to find a historical text which gives us dates and a chronology and a kind of political idea of what's going on, there isn't one.
1: How Roman, from all the archaeology that people have been doing so far, what is our best bet as to how Roman Britain is at this time? Britain
2: is, well, if you go back to about, I guess, 100 years before the Romans leave, you can say Britain isn't that Roman. It's an un-Roman province. There are obviously a large number of wealthy villas, but it's the rich, it's the powerful who are Roman, who are integrated into Roman lifestyle. When you go out away from the villas into the rural settlements, you'll see, I guess you could say peasant communities, people who are farming subsistence levels. They haven't got a lot of access to Roman goods. They're almost excluded from that Roman lifestyle. So when we're talking about Roman culture, it's tied up with the hyper wealthy. And we look at Roman villas and think these are good examples of of, what Roman life was like, but it'd be like looking at the 18th century and focusing just on stately homes. It gives you a completely warped view of what is going on. The wealthy leave a, a substantial footprint, but it's they who are invested in a Roman lifestyle. When you take them out of the picture, Britain is a very un-Roman province at all. So it's not a case of people defending their Romanness against the barbarians. It's people who, um, I mean, they're marked by 400 years of Roman occupation, but there's no incentive to be Roman or to live like the Romans or to preserve or to protect a Roman lifestyle.
1: Fair enough, then. I mean, it's really interesting to kind of highlight that with, as you say, with, with how London seems to have been well abandoned after the Romans leave, you know, a big Roman villa, all those Roman villas fall into disuse. But also, in this period, post-Roman period, you have the emergence of a figure called Ambrosius Aurelianus who it seems does have this Roman heritage that is highlighted.
2: Again, if we go back to Gildas, you know, who's writing in the 540s after the time of, of Ambrosius, Gildas is damning about every single person. You know, every leader, every church member, every anyone involved in the clergy is corrupt or sinful or depraved. The only person he's got a good word for is Ambrosius Aurelianus. He describes them as the last of the Romans presumably somebody of a very wealthy background who's got their own private army but whatever Ambrosius does it's worthy of Gildas's praise the only person in his entire narrative who does anything worthy and he doesn't give us a lot of detail but he says that his parents very sort of euphemistic phrase he says uh, they were of the purple it's emperors in the first and second centuries AD, purple is such an expensive dye that they wear, have purple clothes, purple toga, senators have purple stripes. So wearing the purple means that you are an emperor or a member of the imperial family. And he says that Ambrosius's parents were of the purple. So presumably they were an usurpers or they were general, they were someone high up in the infrastructure of Roman Britain. So he's inherited that sense perhaps of of destiny he's inserted that sense of of having an army of having military background but that's really all we know about him apart from the fact that he fights a battle against Saxons at Mount Baden and it's portrayed as a dramatic victory the enemy almost completely annihilated it's a big sort of a victory over this barbarian horde the like of which has never been seen before. So that's why Gildas gives him this sort of praise as a military genius who inflicts a crushing defeat on the enemy.
1: If we go back to Gildas quickly before going on to the Battle of Mount Baden, because I'd love you to explain in more detail what Ambrosius's supposed role in this battle. It does sound, therefore, that with the figure of Ambrosius Aurelianus, Gildas... Is he our nearest? Is he our, and I put a quote on quote, is he our best source? He's our biggest source. <laughs> he is our only proper yeah, source. I
2: mean, he, he is, he says, the really other irritating thing about Gildas, so he doesn't give us dates. The people he's writing for, his, his congregation, you know, he, he doesn't need to give dates because they're aware of what he's talking about. The only thing he says is uh, the battle of Mount Baden occurred 40 years ago. But given he doesn't tell us when he's writing, that's a fairly pointless, useless sort of uh, uh, definition. So we're assuming Baden's about 500. Gildas is writing about 540. But there's no... He doesn't give us a list of battles, a list of events or dates. So he's our only surviving source from that. There may have been other sources which are since lost during the the dissolution of the monasteries where we know huge amounts of documents were burnt uh, relating to the early religious activity in Britain. But he's the only material that's close to the period that we can rely on.
1: And so talk to me therefore about the Bast of Mount Baden in Gildas's account and the role of Ambrosius Aurelianus in it.
2: He cites Baden as the, sort of the crowning achievement of Ambrosius' reign. He calls it the siege of Mount Baden, the annoying thing is there is we don't know who's besieging whom, but it's evidently one side is, is attacking the other, and we presume it's, by the sound of it, what later writers sort of describe that it's probably the, the Saxons who are being besieged, but it's portrayed as a, as a stunning victory, and it certainly resonates down through the generations, because later writers credit Baden to King Arthur. It becomes the crowning victory of Arthur's reign, so he sort of absorbs that particular campaign, that, that particular battle, and it becomes his crowning achievement. So it's obviously very, very important, but casualties we don't know, we don't really know where it was fought, although most modern historians assume it's somewhere around the area of Bath, and it might be Badon, Bathon, Bath is that same sort of geographical placement. So we don't know much about other than the fact it is a vital turning point in the post-Roman era. but anything else is, is really sort of guesswork.
1: In regards to vital turning points you also mentioned how this seems to be the climax of Ambrosius Aurelianus's achievements from what Gildas is saying. How does Gildas therefore picture depicts the rise of Ambrosius Aurelianus? Is it very much that he is as we let's say we see in a recent a rather recent film King Arthur film with Clive Owen this idea that he rallies the Britons he unites them he brings them together and that a series of Battles are fought against the Saxons, which ultimately culminates in the Battle of Mount Baden, or do we just not have that detail available for Gildas? We
2: just don't have that detail. It's, it's sort of It's Ambrosius emerges as the preeminent general, and Baden is his crowning victory, and then Gildas goes off to rant about other people. So it's that sort of sense that there is a brief pause in his hatred of humanity, where he describes this, this, this amazing achievement, and then we're back to...
1: So he doesn't go on to talk about what happens to Ambrosius Aurelianus no. after the battle, does he? No, he doesn't. So to look more into the life of Ambrosius Aureliana, because it feels that Gildas is quite limited, where do we have to go?
2: Gildas is limited, but he provides a starting point. He's he's the keystone upon which all else is built. Our next really sort of major source is a difficult one. It's often ascribed to Nennius. Nennius, we don't actually really know if if Nennius existed as a real person, but there's lots of writings called the Historia Britonum, the, the history of the Britons, which is a series of genealogies, praise poems, legendary events by different people, which are just sort of lumped into one big book. And Ambrosius's story appears in a more developed form there, but it's quite clear. I mean, this is written at some point, probably around the sort of 900s AD. This is written down, so it's a long, long time from the the, the periods it's describing. And it's clear we've got a series of oral traditions, so spoken accounts which Nennius or someone like him is, is bringing together. So a lot of stories contradict one another. Sometimes we get different accounts of the same people, but Ambrosius Aurelianus appears in, in there as what's been referred to by later writers as the dragon prophecy, which sounds nice and dramatic. Right. But essentially, it's, we get an account whereby there is a leader of Britain, or the Britons called Vortigan, who every source describes as a thoroughly bad hat. You know, he's somebody who's invited the Saxons in, Uh, he's been betrayed by them. He's had all his aristocrats murdered by them. And Vortigern flees to the the distant part of his territory where he tries to build a castle. And this is where we get suddenly the legendary element coming in, the the great sort of mythology. Somewhere, and it's assumed to be somewhere in North Wales, he's creating a castle to protect himself. The builders start. The next morning, all the building material is gone. They start again next morning the building material is gone and it, it can't actually create a defensive structure and so he asks his advisors what can we do about this they say you need to find a boy who has no father a boy who's been a, a mar- miraculous conception bring him here cut his head off sprinkle the blood on the site you'll be fine and eventually to cut a long story short his advisors find this young boy uh, and his mother claims she's, she's never met a man, you know she hasn't been in contact with anyone so it's a miraculous birth They bring him to the site and just before they kill him he says what you need to do is to dig down into below the foundations and you'll find a a pool basically a, a large sort of area and they do that and they find a tent in each corner of this subterranean pool there's a white dragon or a white serpent and a red one the two are fighting the red one looks like it's going to win but then the white one sort of backs the red one into a corner and then finally, the, the red one is eventually triumphant and they sort of go, what the hell is this? What, what, is, what is going on? And the boy announces that he's called Ambrosius Aurelianus. He does actually have a father. His father is a, is a Roman consul. So you know, there's two variant forms of that story. But he says, effectively, what you're seeing is the white dragon is the Saxons, the English, the red dragon are the Britons or the Welsh. And although the Saxons look like they're triumphant now, the red dragon will eventually defeat the white. And this becomes a major element in lots of Welsh mythologies. Uh, it becomes a major element that a lot of the princely dynasties of medieval Wales take on board. Thlewellyn the Great takes on board as, as quite a, a major motif. And we see the development of the Welsh flag and the symbol of the red dragon coming from that story. Now, of course, we have no idea where this story originates from. But the fact we've got Ambrosius Aurelianus as a young man, you know, this is his earliest, it's not like his origin story motivating the Britons, giving them something to fight for, and giving this sense of destiny. Later accounts rewrite that and it becomes Ambrosius Merlin, and then it becomes Merlin. So the story of Merlin comes out of Ambrosius, but Nennius first credits this to Ambrosius. Um, So Vortigern, the bad king, is replaced by Ambrosius, the good king. And at the end of the story, we've got Ambrosius attacking Vortigern in his castle. The castle gets destroyed, the bad guy gets burnt with his entire army, and Ambrosius takes power.
1: And so in that version is there no is there a comparative version to Mount Baden battle therefore, or is it very much this clash against sport again?
2: In Nennius we get this is the first time we see the name Arthur really emerging because we get a list of Arthur's twelve great battles. Now some of these battles are obviously repeated, so it's probably more like six great battles of which the other six yeah. have been repeated. But Baden is in there and it's the first time that Baden has been taken from Ambrosius and given to Arthur. Arthur's not credited as a king. He's the Duke of Battles but it's the first time that we've seen Arthur as an individual being named now the problem with Arthur as we've been aware of you know for generations is that Gildas doesn't mention him earlier source doesn't describe King Arthur and there's an absence in his writings which is either because Gildas hates Arthur but I think he would have mentioned him and said what an awful person he is because he does that to everyone or Arthur's been created from other great characters and Ambrosius because we know it's Ambrosius that fights Baden and later Arthur is given that battle that that I think the Arthur story is a a composite character, a large part of which is created from the the real life character of Ambrosius Aurelianus who does fight Baden, who does get the Britons together and who is seen as a great rallying force.
1: Hi there, I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author And I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed hopping around different time periods from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now.
0: Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover, or just looking for a good tale, you'll want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. And it is interesting, isn't it, if you mention that Nennius writing in the 10th century? Yes. 10th century, and if Gildas... As close as we can guess. (laughs) As close as we can guess. And if Gildas is in the 6th century, and Gildas mentions Ambrosius Aurelianus then, even though the mentions of Ambrosius you don't hear in the centuries between, evidently the legacy of that figure does live on. So it's really interesting to try and piece together how his legacy has developed, has evolved by the time you get to Nennius, particularly in that Celtic, you know, the non-Saxon conquered part of Britain.
2: It is. I mean, it, it's really, in a way, it's quite, it's exciting, but it's also frustrating because we know when the character Geoffrey of Monmouth in the 1130s writes down a series of legends, he says a lot of these are oral stories that people have been telling for, for hundreds of years. And we know in, if we call it Celtic society, there is this old tradition of storytelling, that stories are passed down by word of mouth. They don't write anything down. And the danger is there. That we know that stories can last for hundreds, if not thousands of years, but they gradually change and they mutate and they develop into other things. So the stories of Ambrosius and the later stories of Arthur are written down hundreds of years after they really happened. So they've mutated into something else and getting back to the origins of the story is very difficult. But we can at least say when Gildas writes in 540, there is no Arthur. He appears later and it might be that he's being created out of the story of Ambrosius Aurelianus.
1: Well when you look at a figure therefore like Nennius, and we'll get on to Geoffrey of Monmouth in a bit too, I mean how have you found it trying to see whether there's this element of truth, the basis of truth for the very much legendary figure of Arthur and also of Ambrosius Aurelianus by that time? Is there any way by looking at Gildas's accounts and then looking at an account like Nennius and thinking right is there any basis of truth here in which I can look at Gildas's account an idea of this figure of Ambrosius Aurelianus from that and then potentially learn a bit more of this figure away from the fantasy in later sources like Nennius.
2: It's very, very difficult. I mean the problem is when we look at Nennius and we look at some of the later writings, there's things in it that are so obviously fantastical, like the whole serpent stories, the fighting dragons. This is obviously something really fantastical, really sort of this couldn't have happened in a sense. There's so many of these kind of, of accounts that it's quite clear that when you get into the 8th, ninth centuries, the original stories of Ambrosius and what develops into Arthur have shifted completely and that they are becoming more dramatic. You're having giants and dragons and magic being added to it. So to try and drill back down to the the original stories is extremely difficult. We don't have a wealth of primary sources. And so using these later versions to try and create a story, I mean, it's, it's worth doing but you're never really going to, to get to the, the, the actual, I guess, solid truth of the, the original.
1: Incredibly difficult question, I know, I know, fair enough. Well, let's go on. But before we go on to Geoffrey of Monmouth that I've mentioned there, another key figure who I believe does mention Ambrosius Aurelianus, or maybe it's quite a brief reference, Bede. So what do we hear about Ambrosius Aurelianus from Bede?
2: Very little, but I mean, Bede is an interesting contrast to Gildas, because you know, Bede is writing a good sort of couple hundred years later, but he's writing from within the English perspective, so the ecclesiastical history of the English people that Bede writes. It's you know, whereas Gildas describes the English, the Saxons, as a scourge of God, in Bede's account, they are God's chosen people and they're being brought across the North Sea almost like Moses like to the promised land. So, their Bede's outlook is, is very, very different. He mentions in passing Arthur, we get a brief sort of reference around Ambrosius, there's a sense, I mean, effectively, when he's talking about the British leaders, he plagiarises Gildas. He just. If There are certain sections where you can almost word for word what Gildas has said. Ancient writers, especially religious writers, they're not as bothered as plagiarism as we are today. You know, if a modern historian or writer takes wholesale sections of someone else's writing without crediting them, that's bad. We recognise that's bad and that could be the end of their career. In the medieval period, that's perfectly fine. You, you just do that. You don't have to provide references. You don't have to say you're quoting someone else. So a lot of sections, Bede repeats what Gildas has said. So he's not providing any secondary, additional, useful information. He's just repeating verbatim what the earlier writer has said.
1: Well, there you go. Well, let's then move on, therefore, to Geoffrey of Monmouth. Now, how does Geoffrey represent Ambrosius Aurelianus?
2: Take it away. Geoffrey of Monmouth is quite a difficult character in the sense of, you know, we we don't know a huge amount about him, but it's fair to say he divides opinion because really since the 16th century there's been the view that he's just made everything up. He is uh, some kind of pro-British, pro-Welsh nationalist who creates a fantasy account of how wonderful things were here before the English arrived and provides a whole series of mythological, mythical kings going back to the time of the Trojans. You see, The British race were descended from refugees from the Trojan War. He's writing from the, he's, he's
1: the 12th century, as he writes. He,
2: he's writing in 1136, but it's clear when you look at his writings that he's using oral tradition, he's using a whole range of accounts, most of which he doesn't actually really understand the origins of. What he's really trying to do, he gathers together poems, genealogies, bits of histories and tries to weave it into a grand narrative it's true he is creating an account of the britons you know because at the time he's living in the 1130s the normans are in charge of anglo-saxon england but there's lots of anglo-saxon historians like william of malmesbury there's things like the anglo-saxon chronicle there's there are things that give the idea that the english are this great race who have come to britain and they've had fantastic kings and monarchs they've done all this wonderful stuff and he's providing a, a counter narrative that says hang on a minute the Britons were doing very nicely, thank you, before the Saxons arrived. And it's quite clear, I mean, he, he describes as magical events, there are giants and dragons, and he builds on what other writers have done before him. But when you look at his accounts, it is very clear there are a number of historical figures which are there, and they, there's almost like as a there are versions that are quite clear have originated from the British perspective. So when he describes the invasion of Julius Caesar in 55 and 54 BC, The only account we have of that invasion is is from Julius Caesar's point of view. Geoffrey of Monmouth gives us the British perspective and he uses a series of names that weren't actually known to him but which archaeology has since revealed through coinage. So there there are certain hints that he is using earlier accounts, albeit ones which were transmitted by word of mouth rather than being written down. Now having said all that, and with all that sort of associated baggage, to say we have to be careful with Geoffrey of Monmouth, he does provide a detailed account of Ambrosius's life which no earlier writer had done. Gildas just says there's this guy, he won a battle. Um, you know, Bede repeats that. Geoffrey of Monmouth gives us this sense of Ambrosius's heritage. He repeats the story of the, of the dragon prophecy in there. He gives us an account of Ambrosius as king, what he did. He gives us this idea that it's, it's thanks to Ambrosius that Stonehenge exists as a monument we get the earliest account of Merlin, you know, later writers have Merlin as King Arthur's wizard. In Geoffrey of Monmouth's account, Merlin and Arthur never meet. Merlin is Ambrosius's wizard. you know, so there are things in there which are important because they create, they're they're the beginnings of the Arthur story. They're beginnings of a whole series of other stories. But nowhere does Geoffrey say precisely where he got his information from. So although we can say there are things there that obviously have come from verbal or oral sources, it is possible that he is also making stuff up. We just can't say. So we, I think we have to be very careful, but it is interesting in what he does say about Ambrosius because one of the key events, he mentions um, the battles that he fought, but it's intriguing that Baden has now moved to being King Arthur's battle. Arthur come, Arthur is Ambrosius' nephew in this account. It's uncle Ambrosius who is king of, of Britain, who, who fights the Saxons, but not Baden. But he gives us this wonderful account not just of the dragon prophecy, but this idea that because the Saxons have slaughtered a large number of British aristocrats, Ambrosius wants to create a monument to them, and he creates it on Salisbury Plain, and his wizard Merlin says, what you've got to do is go to Ireland, there's a stone circle there, which is ideal, we'll go over there, we'll steal it, we'll bring it back to Salisbury Plain, we'll put it up, and it will be a monument to those who've fallen fighting the Saxons, and we get this really convoluted rather bizarre account of the stones being brought over and in the middle of it Ambrosius is then crowned king so it's part of a coronation now although later archaeologists have said well we do know that the certainly the blue stones in Stonehenge come from Wales so there might be some evident or some sort of idea of the stones traveling some significant distance Excavations inside Stonehenge, and I was part of the dig that Professor Timothy Darvill and Jeff Wainwright did in 2008. But we excavated a series of bluestone sockets in the interior, and they're full of late Roman material. It's quite a lot of evidence that the bluestones, as we see them today, aren't prehistoric survivals. They've been chipped at, they've been modified, they've been moved around. And although there is no proof, it would be intriguing to think that Ambrosius Aurelianus, as a character, if he's, you know, I can't think of a better place to be crown king than in the centre of Stonehenge. But what we're probably seeing, rather than the stones being brought there, they're being modified, they're being chipped, they're being changed, they're being altered, and Ambrosius is at the centre of it. Uh, we can all say, you know, nearby, you've got Amesbury, which translates as uh, Ambrosius's burr. Now, we don't know whether that's a survival of the memory of Ambrosius being there, or it's some kind of back projection, or it's an invention to try and explain the name. But it's one of those key. Geographic locations in Britain where the name Ambrosia survives and it's right next to Stonehenge. So there's lots of sort of Intriguing evidence that links the character to the site, but it's Geoffrey of Monmouth who gives us that and of course We've got to be careful what he's saying.
1: But as you say, we have to be careful. We have to take it with a huge <laughs> Bucket full of salt, exactly, but it is really interesting there that you have this potential archaeological evidence which seems to affirm that this site was being used in this post-Roman period. You have this potential link to the name Ambrosius Aurelianus there. And then you have Geoffrey of Monmouth's accounts. And it's almost as if it's so intriguing to kind of go down that rabbit hole, isn't it? And to sort the, f- not, well, not fact from the fiction, but to find where the elements of truth, the basis of truth might be in his account. As you suggest, said earlier with these Britons who were fighting against Julius Caesar, who we know were present in Britain mm. at that time. It's really interesting, therefore, to delve into a source like Geoffrey Monmouth to try and figure out what is the truth behind the myth in all of this.
2: Yes, it is. It is. I mean, I say it's you know intriguing that Ambrose is linked with the, this part of the West Country, uh, and that we have got. I mean, we look at Stonehenge and we think of it as a as a fantastic survival from the Neolithic and Bronze Age, and you tend to forget about every subsequent generation has also seen it and they may have changed it. And there's very clear evidence in the late Roman period and the post Roman period someone is changing it. It would be nice if it was Ambrosius Aurelianus. That's the literary tradition. But we'll, you know, short of actually finding an inscription there that says that, we you know we're never really going to be able to prove it.
1: No, absolutely fair enough. I mean, let's keep going on Geoffrey Monmouth for a bit longer. What does he therefore say happens to Ambrosius Aurelianus?
2: Ambrosius Aurelianus—he's he, been given credit for unifying the kingdom. You know, he defeats the Saxons. He chases them up to uh, York. Um, he defeats them, his army defeats Hengist, who's one of the the great Saxon leaders at at the time, they bring peace to the kingdom, but eventually Ambrosius Aurelianus, there is a court plot and he's poisoned and assassinated, and then his brother Uther Pendragon takes over, and of course it's Uther who is the father of Arthur, so we've got this sideline of a new dynasty being created. Now I think from what we were saying earlier, Arthur is a problematic character, and it's quite clear that The Battle of Mount Baden Baden has been given to him. It's been taken from Ambrosius and given to Arthur. There are other things that are also being taken from other characters and given to Arthur. And I think we have to be very careful because when we look at Arthur in Geoffrey of Monmouth, is the first person who gives Arthur a life story from conception to death. But all aspects of Arthur's story in Geoffrey has come from other people. And I think what he's done, is created an ultimate Celtic superhero at the end of his book which is drawn from all the previous characters, you know, so he's creating a fiction. And it's Arthur who lives on at the expense of Ambrosius Aurelianus. He is the real historical character we can point to and say did exist. Arthur probably didn't exist, but he's been generated out of the exploits of others.
1: So, I mean, that's, well, let's keep on that a bit longer then. So you mentioned, a, and as you've said in our previous podcast about King Arthur last year, there are several figures who contribute to this creation of this celtic superhero so how significant is ambrosius aurelianus in the creation of king arthur compared to these other figures who contribute to the figure
2: ambrosius is the only one who fits the date so the other characters we've got magnus maximus in the in the fourth century we've got arviragus or Caratacus in the first century ad they provide dramatic battles when we read stories of arthur There's a lot of things in there, like we've got Arthur's portrayed as a Celtic warrior, he's a a berserker, he's got chariots. There's this real sense that a lot of it comes from earlier periods, from earlier sort of epic poems. Ambrosius Aurelianus is the only warrior in the post-Roman period who's fighting the Saxons, which is what Arthur does. So I think when Geoffrey of Monmouth is writing his account, he's got other sort of characters who he brings forward and sticks into the Arthur story. But Ambrosius is there at the right time, doing the right thing, and it's Ambrosius who fights at Baden Hill, but Geoffrey of Monmouth wants to give Baden to Arthur, his character. So he takes it from Ambrosius, but it's Ambrosius who is there at the right time in the 5th century AD. You know, he's the one who's doing the fighting. He's the one who, who fights the siege of Baden. He's the one who arguably might be unifying the country. He's the one who got a grand coronation at Stonehenge. But it's Arthur who obviously benefits from that because those elements are used to build him up. But it's Ambrosius who's there at the time. No other character is there fighting the Saxons in the aftermath, in the carnage of of post-Roman Britain.
1: So apart from that, those potential links from Stonehenge, which you mentioned earlier, is there any other archaeological evidence that can give more tantalising clues about Ambrosius Aurelianus alongside the likes of Geoffrey of Monmouth?
2: The interesting thing is is that when we look at things like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, uh, just as a jump into another bit of evidence but the anglo saxon Chronicle which we know is written you know at some point around about 900 AD it's written in the kingdom of Wessex and it's written at the time to really create a origin story for the English because the English are fighting the Danes at that point so they're trying to explain how the kingdom of Wessex came into being and it also describes things like the the, the kingdom of Sussex and so on it doesn't mention any or very few Britons by name because oh, it's an overtly English perspective Whereas Geoffrey of Monmouth is writing in a very overtly British perspective, but in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle we have a character called Aella, who is the king of Sussex, who's described as being the first Bretwalda, the first overlord of Britain. Mm. And Aella is described as coming across the sea. He fights what's described as the Welsh, because the Saxons always call all the Britons Welsh. You know, it's not a geographical term. It's just it's basically a, a pejorative term meaning foreigner which is quite insulting really. But in that sort of time, he lands on the coast, he fights a battle and he attacks the Britons in a massive fortification and slaughters them all. And that's exactly what Ambrosius Aurelianus does. He comes across from Brittany, where he's in hiding, he lands on the coast, he fights a battle, he attacks Vortigan and he kills everyone inside the fortress. And I think Aella is Ambrosius Aurelianus because we know that the Saxons do that, again, with the Kingdom of Wessex, the founders of the Kingdom of Wessex, are Kurdic and Kinrick, and those are British names. So they've hijacked British kings and turned them into Saxon kings. And that's what I think Aella is in Sussex, the Kingdom of Sussex, he's actually Ambrosius Aurelianus, and therefore he becomes a key figure. He becomes Arthur in British tradition, he becomes Aella in English tradition. So he's got an impact. He's obviously a major figure who does important things, but he's remembered by both sides who are fighting at that time but we don't recognise him today, you know, he, he's got a major impact, but he's al- almost disappeared because he's evolved into something else.
1: He's evolved into something else, which we've gone to now. Careful about saying, you know, calling someone Welsh is an insult, you know, talk, you're talking <laughs> I, to I, someone I, whose surname I, is Hughes. I, I,
2: I, um, I'm, not, I'm not saying he's an <laughs> insult today, but the, the English use it really as a sense, I mean, they, they use the term Welsh meaning um, foreigners or some sometimes even slaves, but it's intriguing, they land in Sussex and they fight the Welsh. That's makes sense to them but to a writer like Geoffrey Monmouth who's writing in the 1130s he sees the Saxons are fighting the Welsh to him it has a very distinct geographical placement because Wales to him equates with what we see as Wales today so a lot of stories of Saxons fighting Britons get transposed to Wales because when people are writing it up you can't have the Welsh in Sussex But you can have them in the western part of
1: Britain. It's all good amigo, just pulling your leg, (laughs) just pulling your leg. A final thing then, let's talk about Clive Owen and the 2000x whatever, whenever, whichever year it was film, King Arthur, because that King Arthur one, it almost seems as if it is, or it is, isn't it? King Arthur is the name, but it's fighting against the Saxons, you have that Roman influence there too, I don't know if there's any actual Sarmatian link in Ambrosius Aurelianus' story, no. but that seems to be the prime example of where the Ambrosius Aurelianus story has evolved into the Arthur story and is sometimes, Arthur is portrayed in that way.
2: Yeah, Arthur tends to get portrayed more, more recently as a late Roman general. So as exactly as, you know, Gildas describes Ambrosius Aurelianus as somebody of Roman heritage. So he's there in Roman armor, organizing people in a very, he's the last gasp of Roman Britain. I'm pleased you brought that film up because um, I have issues with it. I mean, it's a it's a great bit of sort of swords and, and sorcery sort of thing. It's got a lot of problems in it. The Saxons land in Scotland and then they march south to Hadrian's War. And it has problems, but at least visually it conveys a sort of sense of the chaos after the Romans have left. Political stability has gone and you've got people who are probably using Roman forts as the basis of a new kingdom. You know, you've got private armies, security forces, you've got warlords and their families ensconced within the remains of Roman forts and sometimes rebuilding Iron Age hill forts. And I think visually, at least that gives us a sense of politically what's going on, people fighting for survival. And it's later generations who look back at that and pick certain characters as their, you know, everyone likes an origin myth. Every country, every society has got an idea of where they come from, even if it's wrong. And I think people look back to Ambrosius and to Arthur and they pick and choose certain leaders and they create a mythology from that. And we've got to try and sometimes take away that mythology and go back and say, what actually is happening? What's the reality of that situation? And I think at least from the point of view of giving us a sense of what society was like, the film King Arthur is good. From a historical point of view, it's diabolically <laughs> awful. But don't let me stop any of your, your <laughs> listeners from watching it.
1: Let's get back to the history very quickly then. A slight tangent, last thing before completely wrapping up. Tristan, Sir so Tristan, there's no parallel is there that he's actually linked to a Romano-British hero like Arthur, is there?
2: Well, Tristan and Isolde. Yeah. So oh, is that the oh, that's the yeah, answer, I, mean, there is, there? I mean, in...
1: in Selfish Coral, tangent at the end. Know.
2: <laughs> You've got the uh, so-called Tristan Stone which is a sort of 6th, 7th century stone, which cites somebody called Drustanus. And of course, the story of Tristan and King Mark and Isolde really becomes, gets rewritten and becomes the story of King Arthur, Lancelot and Guinevere, that sort of love triangle. But it's a much, much earlier element. And certainly, I think Tristan is a Cornish hero. And he later gets written into the Arthur myth as one of Arthur's knights, but he's got an origin which is much, much earlier. And he may well be another warlord who's existing, trying to carve out a kingdom and trying to survive in 5th, 6th century Cornwall.
1: That's right. That's what I thought. Be that, Gildas. But there you go, (laughs) Miles. Anyway, thanks for that slight tangent at the end. Last but certainly not least, you've written a book all about Ambrosius Aurelianus, King Arthur. This book, which is called?
2: Arthur and the Kings of Britain by Amberley Publishing, it came in 2017, but it, yes, we're doing us a, a new version of that and bringing new evidence into it, but it, it's really a attempt to looking at Geoffrey of Monmouth and all these sources to try and see the historical reality within all these later mythologies and trying to understand who Arthur was, who Ambrosius Aurelianus ultimately was. I'm
1: very jealous. That is such a good topic anyway. Miles, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been wonderful to do this in person too. So it just goes for me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come back on the podcast today. Thank you. Well, there you go. There was Miles explaining all about Ambrosius Aurelianus and his extraordinary legacy. I love that idea, for instance, of how the red dragon of the Welsh flag it originates from the figure, from the fictional stories, the later additions to the story of Ambrosius Aurelianus. It's such an interesting tale and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Now, last thing from me, we've got a special offer ongoing at the moment on History Hit related to the Ancients podcast. Now, History Hit, it's an online subscription service dedicated just to history, documentaries, and podcasts. You have all the History Hit podcasts there, the whole stable, not just the Tudors, Gone Medieval, betwixt the Sheets, of course, the Ancients and others. You have all of our podcast episodes there. But what's better, what's best about the History Hit versions of these podcasts is that they're ad-free. You can access, you can enjoy all these podcasts ad-free if you sign up to History Hit today with code ANCIENTS. You can enjoy off your first three months access to History Hit. It's a bargain alongside two initial weeks free. Completely free. So give it a test run. See if it's your cup of tea. If it's not, absolutely fair play. But it is the home for history lovers. But that's enough rambling on from me. Code Ancients if you want to subscribe to History Hit today. And I'll see you in the next episode.